0: The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. And the question that's behind what I'll talk about today is what does it mean to be mindful in the context of the shootings in Charleston, South Carolina? What does it mean to be mindful of that? I couldn't imagine not talking about what happened there. It seems like it it was such a huge thing for this country. And uh, it certainly had a big impact on me. First, the shootings themselves. Uh, Just the whole story behind the shootings is quite phenomenal. That someone planned for months, carefully, to have a shooting, killing, in uh, one of the most symbolic churches of black America. Quite something. And then uh, on Friday, I think it was Friday, watching uh, the video of uh, the court uh, proceedings where the Uh, family of the victims were speaking to the alleged murderer who apparently he had already uh, pleaded guilty or said he confessed that he did it and um, and it was quite phenomenal to hear these people speaking directly to him and including uh, forgiving him two days later imagine forgiving someone who just killed your brother or sister or mother or daughter or something. And um, and the honesty in which they spoke, and you know, the emotions they spoke, and how that whole proceedings went. It was quite. Anyway, I thought it was one of the phenomenal spiritual moments of this year and for American culture as a whole. And I was so uh, struck and, and in awe of... Um, this kind of certain strength and uh, values of that African-American religious culture that represented. So that was quite amazing. And then, um, and then to kind of have swirling around the in and out of the, all this is the whole discussion about the Confederate flag. And, um, and it was nice, I think it was great that uh, the governor of South Carolina is now suggesting they take it down off the Capitol because it's painful for a whole segment of society to have that flag up there. And what's amazing is it took 150 years to realize that it was painful, or 150 years to take a certain population seriously enough to understand the pain of that symbol. So these kind of of events, so what what does it mean to kind of take, to be mindful on this? And uh, one of the things I think it means is to be willing to witness it, willing to be present for it, and not rush to opinions, not rush to ideas or judgments or um, solutions even. Because to rush to opinions, to rush to solutions, rush to ideas, which is a very human thing to do, is probably the very kind of activity of the mind which perpetuates something like racism. Perpetuates not really seeing deeply the situation, not really seeing deeply the other person, not really seeing ourselves even deeply. There's something about a rush to judgment, a rush to opinions, that kind of closes things off or pushes things away or kind of says, you know, kind of limits the way in which we can feel or take in and limits the open mind that investigates further. That's a willing to be, to be a witness means you're really gonna wanna find out what it is on its own terms, not through the filter of our opinions. So why be mindful? Why be a witness for something like this? Um, And why should Buddhists be witnesses, people who practice mindfulness? Many times, uh, Buddhist teachers like myself in teaching about mindfulness uh, will mostly use the reference point for mindfulness our own inner psycho- physical experience psych- our own psychology so how are you feeling what are your thoughts what are your reactions what is it like here for you what is your breathing like how are you breathing where do you pay attention to your breath well that's nice and uh, but that only goes so far right? it only goes like you know to the edges of our body. And there is a, a strong emphasis on doing that in our tradition. But if you go look at the, the instructions the Buddha gave for mindfulness, it's in a text called The Four Foundations of Mindfulness. He talks about being mindful of both internally and externally. And externally can mean the world around us. We learn to pay attention to the world and to learn to be a witness to it, to learn all the skills that we learn to be attentive internally, to use those skills to be attentive outwardly. So one of the things we learn to do internally is we learn to sit still and not react, but in the process of sitting still and not reacting, to pay careful attention. What is this, what's going on here? To open up, to study, to investigate. And that's a huge undertaking. As some of you know, the idea of sitting still and being really present and be still is a hard thing to learn. And it's a great thing to learn. And it's a wonderful thing to learn that ability to be still, to be, 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 learn to be present for difficulty, all kinds of challenges or all the turmoils of our lives, but learn how to be present. and Then use that ability as a gift to our society. To use that ability, actually use it out there um in some ways you know if you become really good at mindfulness it's kind of, it can be good for yourself but it's kind of like maybe learning to i don't know if this is a good analogy but learning to um <coughs> to speak a foreign language but not to have anyone to speak it to i mean you can speak it to yourself that's nice and um but to you know but so to learn mindfulness and only limit it to self-awareness, uh, it's not really using its full potential. And to u- turn it around and use that capacity for equanimity, for attention, for focus, for um, wisdom, for generosity, for compassion, and turn it out into the world to be a witness. And it's a wonderful thing to be a witness to our world. Our world needs more witnesses, that's for sure. Uh, I don't think the Confederate flag would have flown for 150 years over a state capital if uh, people weren't being a witness for the other. You know, South Carolina, I don't know, for a long time had the largest African American population in, the, in any state. So I don't know what it is now, but there's a lot, a big part percentage of the population. It was a painful symbol. So people were people a witness for that, seeing that? So what does it mean to be a witness, to open up, to look? to see, what do we start noticing if we do that? And one of the things that the the Buddha says in this text called the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, he includes as part of what we pay attention to, is paying attention to hostility. So That's interesting, also to uh, greed. And what he says about it when you pay attention to hostility, he says, you should know when hostility is present you should know when hostility is not present. And you should know what uh, brings about hostility. And you should know what brings, out, brings about the end of hostility. So internally, we study these forces inside of ourselves. Sometimes we learn inside of ourselves that if we get aversive or angry, we're frustrated. Maybe we're in pain, we're hurt, or we're afraid. And we feel, start noticing the inner forces or there's egotism, or there's a greed that underlies this cause for hostility. There's all these forces inside of us, and we start noticing and learning how this works. And as we learn that, we learn that it's painful to be have hostility. It's difficult to be hostile. It's a, it's kind of a kind of a uh, painful thing, and it's a lot better not to have it. Or as Martin Luther King said, uh, something like I paraphrase him. Um, I choose love because hate is too much of a burden. Isn't that nice? So when we stop and pay attention, and this is where opinions don't let us see what's really going on. If we get rushed to kind of you know, objectify the world, and, then we don't see what a toll it takes to live in, with hostility. And so we learn how to let go of it. We learn how to rid ourselves of our inner hostility. But we turn the world, the, 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 the eyes outward into our society. What does it take to understand the causes of hostility there? Uh, what brings it about? And what brings about the ending of it? And that's the more complicated. That's not just simply a matter of, you know, looking and being present. But, and hoping that non-reactive awareness is going to show that to us. <laughs> It takes um, uh, study, it takes investigation, it takes learning about things, what's going on. And from time to time, my hope is that everyone chooses something about our society to learn more about. To not live in a myopic world, which is very easy to do, and not settle with just what's on the front page of the newspapers. But take a few, you know, every once in a while, take something that really has impacted you or you think has impacted your society, your community, and start digging and digging, looking. And it's so easy on the web now. You can kind of read this, you know. So I did this over the last, you know, days. And I just kind of couldn't, I just kept looking for more and more articles and kind of weeding through them and finding out ones that I kind of, but were interesting and had an interesting perspective and had more information. And and I felt like this was an important one for me to kind of really understand more what's going on. And, you know, you choose from time to time something. And, it, you know, you don't have to learn everyth- everything about everything. Because if you dig deep enough in one thing, it actually comes back to the roots of everything else. <laughs> you know, it's not, not so, you know... You know, the common denominator of what a lot of our ills, you know, one of the articles, you know, people have said, pointed this out before many times, is that Martin Luther King, you know, the great champion of civil rights, and for that, especially for African Americans, after the uh, Civil Rights Act and the, uh, the Voting Act that he was helped get through. He turned his attention to economic justice in this country, because he felt that you can't have, you know, uh, justice for the African Americans without having economic justice. You can't. You needed to have economic justice, and that was the direction he was going. And um, and I think he 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 investigated the situation deeply. I think so if you go deeply into racism, it's not very, far, not, not very far before you get into economics. And how does economics work and what's that? And what this points to is that part of mindfulness, part of attention for society, when you open up into external mindfulness, is the importance of understanding the context. And this is also a very central Buddhist teachings, that things occur because of conditions conditionality. Conditions conditionality has a lot to do with the context in which it occurs, as opposed to the cause and effect relationship. And there's a strong tendency in the teachings of the Buddha to not get caught up too much in the cause and effect, the cause of things, but rather the conditions for it. And that's a broader picture than the cause. So the cause of the shootings in um, in Charleston, uh, well, there was this angry white guy who walked in and you know shot some people, and this guy was angry. Okay, now okay. we now we understand. That's nice. That's you know to limit it just at that doesn't understand the context of how that came about, what helped, what brought about that kind of hostility, that someone would have such intense hatred and such a strong mission. He was on a mission. He was trying to do, he was really trying to change society and he was trying to save his society. His, what he saw was important. So what were the conditions that allows for that, that makes that possible? And what happens when we open up and look more widely? What are the conditions? And so uh, one of the interesting uh, kind of wider contexts for this kind of thing that I think is very uh, really important to be a witness for, try to understand, is what does it mean to be African-American in the United States? You know, uh, What do they see when they say the Confederate flag? We had an African-American come to uh, Spirit Rock, about, I don't know, maybe 15 years ago. And I think I told the story before, but he was, um, I think he was the only African-American at Spirit Rock, this retreat center we have with about 80 people on retreat. And we have these rooms. Back then, there, there were none, none of the doors were locked. Now they have locks on the doors, finally. But there were no, so you're living in a situation, no doors in your bedroom, no doors in the building. And, um, and he said he felt, basically, the African American man, he said, I felt safe, basically. I mean, these were good people. I knew I was safe. But you see, in the 1960s, uh, in the South, a mob tried to lynch me. So, for him to be in a group of white people, you know it 's a deep conditioning to have someone try to lynch you, right So for him, you know he knew these people were good, but you know the emotional connection, the trauma of that was still with him. The trauma of uh, slavery the or the repercussions of slavery are very much still with us in this country very very much it, uh, slavery was a completely in- inequitable situation, right? And the people who came out of slavery were at a tremendous disadvantage. Here's a story I learned yesterday. Apparently there's a, a, a day, not a holiday, I don't know it's holiday, but a day commemorating, it's a commemoration day called Junith Day. Juneteenth. You know what, what it's called? Juneteenth. Juneteenth? So you know about this, You yeah? I didn't know about this. It's Juneteenth. And, um, so this is to commemorate when uh, slave, some slaves were finally liberated in Texas two years after the uh, emancipation. Because in Texas they didn't bother to tell them that they were free. Imagine that. So, you know, things really, didn't, you know, it wasn't like everyone was cooperating. All the white people were cooperating with, let's free these people and, and let's support them and help them. Um... So, what does it mean to be African American in this country? And one of the one of the things that's you know coming out more and more is uh, uh, unconscious bias. For example, not overt racism, but un- unconscious bias. And for example, in hiring, that if you have a name that sounds African American, it's uh, you're more or less, much less likely to get a job interview if you send your resume. The um, you know, that's uh, that makes life more difficult um, for people who are African-Americans or others, you know, who have this kind of bias, you know. And, um, you know, it wasn't very long ago that housing loans in the United States were um, uh, were being given in favor of white people and then loans, loans rates were higher for African-Americans. And... Um, you know, and there was subtle kind of discrimination about where, or not so subtle, where they could buy homes, where they could live. And one of the, the results of African American, where they can afford to buy homes, the kind of challenge that they had to, you know, there's very little home, much less home ownership by African Americans than white people. But African Americans own homes, own homes in communities where their um, home prices go up slower than most white communities, so whose wealth goes up faster? So white wealth goes, you know, disparity, right? So the disparity grows over time in that kind of division. And, um, you know, or uh, farm loans uh, were, were uh, up until 1990s, um, The there were loans given to white people that were not given to uh, white farmers, not given to black farmers. And there was a lawsuit and, uh, that the government lost because of this division of, you know, this prejudice that went on. So what is it, what's the context of being an African American in this, in this country? You know, what's it like to open to that and pay attention to that? What happens when we start noticing this difference? For that, the different people in our society are treated differently. Some people have greater, head, what's called a headwind everybody has equal opportunity but some people have stronger wind pushing against them, you know, pushing them back so, you know, there's Native Americans and Latin Americans and Asian Americans and you know, all these things that go on that um, make it a little more difficult Um, and then there's a context of all the violence in this country this is one of the most violent countries in the world more people in jail than any other country in the world. What's that about? What is it to be mindful and present for that, to be open to that? So I, I read uh, news from the CNN that said that uh, I guess the day after this massacre in Charleston, the biggest newspaper in Charleston had a one-page, you know, front page spread about what had happened. Makes make sense, right? But they also had an ad on the front page And the ad was um, uh, for $30, you can get a package deal of a revolver, 50 rounds of ammunition, uh, airplugs, instruction in using the gun, and a pass to a shooting range. $30. But on the same page. So the newspaper apologized afterwards for the coincidence. You know, yes, it's a coincidence maybe, but but it's not a coincidence that we have a culture of a lot of guns, a lot of guns. So so, and then there's a context of um, poverty. The um, poverty rate in California, the people who live uh, under the poverty level. Consider the poverty level, um, is now about 24% of people in California live in poverty. It used to be, they said 16%, but uh, 16% uh, was not adjusted for the cost of living in California. And when they, you know, it was kind of a national kind of standards. And when they included the cost of living, 24% of people in California are living in, in poverty. And then the more amazing, not more amazing, but is that another 25% or so live close to the poverty level. <coughs> this county, San Mateo County, has one of the lowest uh, rates of unemployment, but there's a lot of poverty here as well. This is why, you know, Second Harvest is here, because there's a tremendous amount of hunger. Hunger, even in, a, you know, it's kind of invisible, but uh, they're like a booming, not a booming business, but they're a booming soup kitchen because there's a lot of people who need that food that, uh, that uh, Second Harvest provides here in this wealthy area. And so if we open our mindfulness to the context and look beyond ourselves and our people and see what's the, con- what's the context for other people, and this is where it gets really interesting, the mindfulness. Not what's your context but what's the context for the, your neighbors and the people around you and for your community and for society? What context do they see? What do they see? What do they experience uh, when they go about this world? Uh, what, um, what challenges do they have that do, you don't have? What uh, difficulties do they have? Where do they feel afraid? What neighborhoods Do they live in neighborhoods where um, they don't trust the police? You know, we've had a series of headlines, right, week after week. It seems to me, of an African American uh, male who gets shot, gets killed, from a 12-year-old boy to, you know, many of them unarmed. And what's the context for that? What's it like to be? What's the context? What's it like to be an African American male when a police car pulls you over? I think I'd be petrified, terrified. I think it'd be, you know. I, I wouldn't be. I wouldn't be comfortable with that. I'm, I'm not comfortable as it is as a white person with the police. But if, if reading those, you're seeing what goes on. What's that like? What's the context for other people? And that I think is where there's hope for our society. Is if we start asking ourselves that question. What's it like for others? What's it like for other people in our society? Uh, and uh, so now, right now, you know, what's really looming large is what's it like for African-Americans in our society? What's it like for them to see the Confederate flag? So this is also CNN article said. So after the shooting, the state capitol in uh, South Carolina, they had the American and South Carolina flag at half mast, which is reasonable. That's what we do in America, Right. But they had one flag that we kept it at the full mast, the Confederate flag. Isn't that amazing? You know that stays up. So maybe that's part of the embarrassment or the shock of realizing what had happened right after the shooting—that that flag stayed up. That's part of the motivation. We have to bring this, you know, stop using this flag. So what happens if we open ourselves and just keep studying and learning the context, learning what's going on, reading and finding out, is I think one of the things that begins happening is, and, and we don't rush to opinions, but just feel. I think that then there starts becoming maybe greater understanding of other people, greater appreciation of other people, greater sensitivity of other people. There's a wonderful scale called the oh no, the Rider Scale, I think it's called. Someone know about the Rider Scale here? No? So the Rider Scale was uh, a psychologist, I think in Arizona, came up with a scale of people's bias against, again, uh, homophobic, homo, uh, against uh, homosexuals or something, or people, but it's been, now been applied to other places, and to race, racial issues and all kinds of issues. And uh, it goes from one end of the scale is hostility. The other end of the scale is nurturance. And hostility, repulsion, and then nurturance. And halfway between, it's like nine nine different steps in the scale. And right uh, midway through the scale is acceptance. And I was so curious about this. I mean, I kind of like I kind of like almost stunned. And then I looked at the scale and said, where do I fit? You know, different kinds of people, different kinds of... Uh, do, <laughs> you know, so there's, a, there's a range of possibilities I hadn't realized before. And, you know, and maybe I thought before, well, I accept all kinds of people. But it's only midpoint in the scale. <laughs> and I said, wow, <laughs> you know, that maybe, that maybe acceptance is not good enough. Um, so above acceptance is appreciation. I forget exactly the numbers you know how they go, but one of the next things is appreciation of others, valuing of others, um, and then uh, supporting others and, nur- and uh, nurturing. I don't remember it quite right. And then What? Celebration, celebration should be. I think nurturing was the ultimate, but celebration is pretty good getting up there. So celebrating other people. So um, so it's a whole different, you know, it's a kind of a higher standard of how we tune into people and understand them and and the idea of acceptance. Um, I heard a quote the other day that, um, I don't know who it was, but it was attributed to a gay man who said, I don't want to be accepted. I want to be loved. (laughs) You know, do you want to just be accepted? (laughs) You know, it's nice to be accepted, right? But it's better to be loved. It's better to be appreciated. It's better to be celebrated. better to be nourished. The, uh, so one of the things that they're, you know, it's, 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 I think it's really great, all these studies that people are doing to show the unconscious bias and things we have. And I saw one today of uh, talking about mentorship, how incredibly important mentorship is. And what it meant was kind of like networking, like the who opens doors for you. And the strong tendency is that... Um, when you meet some people, or you go into a room. People gravitate to the people they know, people who are similar to them. And the people who are similar to them, you kind of naturally say, "Oh, by the way, you know, there's this possibility down there. There's a job opening there. There's this. This is how the works here in this business company." And you get little tips, little help, so it becomes easier to go through it. But if you're different from, you know, if you're the person who's different, then it's a little bit harder to get those little tips, little support, the doors opening up. And so this woman who was talking about this talked about how important it is to mentor people, uh, to support people, to kind of you know people who are kind of not easily fitting in, um, you know to um, to support them. It was a great. It was a it was a TED talk, TED talk today. I watched. Um, I forget the title of it. It was a great one. Um, this woman shows stands on stage and she wears a whole. Um, what they called in the Arabic, this, um, the ga, what? Yeah. Yeah, something. Like anyway, the whole thing, right, with a head. Yeah, with a whole, with, it, with a turban on top and everything. And she says, what do you think about this, um, you know, what do you think about me from walking down the streets, People look at me, people size me up, some people are afraid of me, but what, what do you see when you see me? And then she showed a photograph of herself on the slide on the, on the wall and she says, well, you think I would be a race car engineer? And then she shows, herself, shows her with a team of engineers working on race cars and driving a race car. Yes. <laughs> and then she goes on and on, and then she says, talks about it for a while, and then uh, she takes off her, her, her robe and, uh, and her kind of outer scarf. She, has, she still has a scarf on her head. And uh, what she's wearing underneath that is a um, is kind of, I think it was orange Jumpsuit, not the kind you wear in jail, but the kind you would wear on a um, oil rig. And she's uh, uh, the uh, chief engineer of an oil rig in Australia. (laughs) (laughs) It's not what you expect, you know. You see someone wearing this, and um, so it goes. You know, on from there. You know, she's. But she said she came. uh, She immigrated to as a child to Australia and that the people opened doors for her. And the, when she got the job at the oil rig, uh, the person said um, something like, everything about you doesn't fit to work in an oil rig. But she was an engineer, right? Um, you know, culturally or whatever, you know. just and, um, But you come along. I'll give you the job. You have to open, you know, open the door. So, when people are marginalized, doors aren't open up as much. There's unconscious bias. So if we learn this, if we kind of take the time to learn and learn and learn, then perhaps we begin opening our hearts more. We have greater appreciation, greater understanding, greater sensitivity to the d- dynamics going on in our society, greater caution and care with the people we encounter. To, ha- to encounter people not with mindfulness. That's pretty good to have mindfulness. But in addition to be mindfully present, to have caution and care about what you're seeing and what your bias and what your interpretations are. What's going on for you in the situation? And do you have... You can probably assume you have unconscious bias. And if you assume you have it, what do you do? How do you look then? Do you stop? You give situation a second chance, look more deeply. How do, you, how do you look? So I don't know about what's going to happen, or how our societies should or could respond to these shootings, but I certainly hope that this is a kind of situation like 9-11 where I, I think we should be changed by it. I, I believe that certain things are so big that if we're not changed by them, then uh, we are not. Um, I think we do ourselves a disservice. I think if we're not changed for it by it, I think that somehow we we kind of clo- we close down or we go to sleep or something goes on. But to allow ourselves to be changed, to take the time to be changed by something, so uh, you know, that means lingering with it, not the rushing, not, not recognizing for the day, and going on to your business but staying with it and learning about it and questioning it and discussing it and letting it sit in your heart. And how do you want to be changed by these kinds of things? Is it only someone else's responsibility? So I'll give you an example of of how I was changed by 9-11. We have here at, uh, we have, you know, connected to me a Buddhist uh, organization called Sati Center for Buddhist Studies that does more kind of scholarly Classes on Buddhism and when 9-11 happened I said to myself, it's nice to do these scholarly studies but it's not enough anymore. So um, we created a Buddhist chaplaincy program. So now it's like the 12th year we've been doing it every year and we train a great group of people and to be, to be chaplains and they go off and work in hospitals and hospices and prisons and do great stuff. Some of them do great work, some of them do, they're all great people who come in and um, you know, and I've been doing this for 12 years, because of 9/11. If it wasn't for 9/11 we would not have a chaplaincy program here at IMC, this training program. So, what about you know, is is what happened in Charleston big enough that you want to be changed by it? And if you want to be changed, how will you allow yourself to be changed? Or are you expecting the politicians to do something? You know, that's nice but how do you want to be changed? And that's what, um, you know. again, to go back to the teachings of the Buddha and the foundations of mindfulness, there's mindfulness internally and mindfulness externally. And so what does it mean to be mindful externally? And one of the things I've offered tonight, it means also being aware of the context of what goes on, opening up to the conditions and the context out of which it arises. Uh, the ground which things arise not kind of be mesmerized or lost by the detail sometimes but rather to look at the network of cause and conditions that are present and some of them going back for centuries Um, like slavery and what happened there you know I I learned a a name this week right maybe some of you learned it too a man named Denmark Visey never heard of him but he you know he America has this wonderful—I don't know if it's wonderful—but America glorifies a tradition of people who fight for liberation, independence. Right? The, the so-called fathers of our country that fought a revolution to liberate this country, Declaration of Independence. And you know, we hardly remember the African Americans who uh, tried to uh, fight for their independence, their freedom. So uh, this guy, um, Denmark Vesey, was one of those people who tried to start a revolt in Charleston in something like 1818 or 18, something like 1820 or something, uh, because there was all these slaves back then, right? It was an awful situation. He, he, had, he had built, he was one of the people who built this uh, church that, where the shooting happened, the Manuel A&B Church. <clears throat> and there were rules against uh, African Americans meeting in churches, and there also were rules that uh, slaves couldn't be uh, taught literacy. And so they would gather in their church and then they'd get arrested and then they were whipped. So, you know, they st- decided to fight for independence in the great American tradition. But it didn't work for him. And he got executed and the church was burnt down. And I think that was the first of the African American churches in America that got burnt down. And there's, you know, and I've been trying to figure out how many churches have been burned down in America. And I get different numbers. But uh, one, one number had 100 churches in the last 150 years have been burned down. One article said, just in the 1990s, there was a rash of uh, church burnings in the South in the 1990s that happened. Um, and there were some like 70 churches that got burned in the, in the process of two years. And then uh, I'll end with this one. Uh, I think I kind of knew it, but I, at the time i couldn 't believe it. I thought it must have been a coincidence or i don 't know what I thought back then but now it's I read more about it it 's clear that uh, the day after obama 's first inauguration as president, there was an african American church that was burnt in Massachusetts, and the people who did it had, uh, confessed that they did it because of uh, you know they were you know somehow going to get back or do something towards the African Americans. So in 2009, right? 2009, is that right? Or 8? I'm confused. Um, the um, 2009, I guess, inauguration, right? And uh, anyway, whatever you know when it was. It was a few, some years ago. I mean, it, what I'm trying to say is it wasn't very long ago and they're still burning <coughs> black churches for, a long, for years. So we live in this country and um, and please don't look things, look at your, your world that you live in only through the filter of your life, only through the context of your people and your kind of communities. It's not gonna work if we do it that way. And we have to begin looking through the eyes of other people as well. We have to look through the context of how other people live as well, because then we can be each other's neighbors. Then we can be each other's kind of supporters. Then also we can start appreciating people, and even celebrating people, and perhaps nurturing people, mentoring people, so helping other people to get along. And if we do that for others, we will be supported as well. I'm sure it's all in it. We're all in it together, mutually. So I hope that this talk is meaningful response to what's happened. I hope that the idea of that mindfulness is more than just personal mindfulness is something that is um, important to understand. When we talk about these kinds of things, every once in a while, I usually don't know uh, what to say. I usually feel like, uh, you know, this is not something I know so much about and I feel like I'm stumbling along to try to understand. But maybe that's okay, and maybe today the idea is to convey um, uh, uh, the importance of being a witness and taking time to learn, to study, before we rush to opinions. Don't judge, study. Okay? Thank you all.